0: Uh, Father, thank you for bringing me back to my family, Father, and to the precious men and women here, Father, who love you and love your word and work so well together, Father, in so many ways. And, Father, we also acknowledge that we are children under your care, still working to walk in a better way with you, Father, to learn and to apply the truths of Scripture that you have given to us. And that's just never going to end, Father. We don't want it to end. We're looking forward to an eternity in which we get to know you even more. But in the meantime, Father, we thank you for this, this schoolhouse that you've assembled here in southwest Austin where this, the study of your word is, is paramount. And I pray, Father, in the accomplishing of what we learn, it is equally paramount. I can see those who gather to learn, Father. I can't always see those who might apply, but I know you can. And so I pray that by the Spirit working in each man and woman here, that you are uh, telling them even now that what's coming is something they need to hear, that what's uh, to be done with it is something they can do, that we all can do if we set our minds to it. And that with our faith, Father, we please you by our works of service. So I ask, Father, that as we've done so much service for you in years past, that we would have yet more to do that you give us opportunities in taking what we learn and putting it to work. I thank you, Father, for the care and the, and the way the elders have worked hard in this church to care for you. I pray, Father, for each of them and that they will continue in that role. We ask, Father, that you would strengthen them for that endeavor, particularly Rick. Father, as I know he has um, weakened a little in the way that his body is, is tired and, and uh, in poor health at times. But, Father, you kept him here with us today and you continue to strengthen him and we thank you for that. And we thank you, Father, for the gifts of all those in this body. Let none of them sit on the sidelines when there's so much to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, after a long break, hopefully one that wasn't too long, we're now ready to get back into our study of Ruth. We're going to pick up again in chapter 3. We're following the story, as you know, of two widows seeking rest In the land of Israel, one widow is Jewish, one widow is Gentile. And as you also know, we're looking at a second story in this book in which these women represent larger concepts. One of these women represents Israel, one of them represents the church. And last time they had met this man Boaz, Boaz entered into this personal covenant to care for Ruth. And for Naomi, the other woman, Boaz is discreetly making provision available through Ruth. And in that way, he becomes a picture of Christ. And his relationship with each of these women, we've come to see as pictures of Christ's relationship with first Israel, God's chosen people, and then also with the Gentile church, with you and I. So while Israel has been set aside now for a period of judgment, the church entered into a relationship with Christ. But Israel, as we said, has not been forgotten, so in the time to come, they will be restored as well. That's the big picture here. So you have two stories intertwined here in the story of Ruth. The One story about two widows who are just working to obtain the rest that they desperately want in the land. And then the second story about two groups of people across history who obtain eternal rest through a grace that comes from a common savior. So as we reach the end of chapter two, we notice that the second harvest was coming to an end. We said that there was the original harvest of barley that's followed soon thereafter in the season of harvest by a second harvest of wheat. They're separated by about six weeks. And at the end of chapter 2, we had reached the second of those harvests, the end of the entire harvest season. During that season, Ruth has spent her time doing exactly what Boaz asked her to do, which is to come every day and work that field and go nowhere else. Now, we also noted the work has been relatively easy because Boaz has been making sure that the servants that he has are making it easy for Ruth. But Ruth didn't know it. She just knew that she showed up every day and saw a reward. In the process, it gave Ruth and, by association, Naomi a degree of of protection and provision, the things they sought in the land. In those details, we also saw a prophecy of how God's plan for Israel and the church is going to play out over history. Israel is going to enter into a period of judgment, which, of course, they've done. And they did it as a result of their disobedience to the old covenant, to the one given to Moses. During that time of judgment, the nation experienced trial after trial, making the nation weak, reducing it in number. They're still in that situation today to an extent. And during that same time, the church, the Gentile church, is going to come into a relationship with Israel's Messiah. And it would do so really through the influence of the Jewish people, that is, through the scriptures and through their promised covenants and so on. So in a sense, we can say that Israel and the church have a relationship similar to the one that Naomi and Ruth do, and that Ruth came to know of Israel's God through her relationship to Naomi. Then eventually, the time for judgment for Israel is going to give way, Scripture tells us. It's going to change into a time of testimony. And in that moment, Christ's relationship with both Israel and the Gentile church is going to change in significant ways. Those changes are where we're going now in the story. We're learning what happens when it comes time for God to stop keeping Israel at bay and... Instead, bring her back into focus. What will happen to the church when that comes about and what will happen to Israel when that comes about? Beginning now with how Naomi and Ruth's relationship to Boaz changes in chapter 3. So one is obviously picturing the other. The change in how these women relate to Boaz will picture the changes in the way the church in Israel relate to Christ. So here we are in the harvest season, drawing to a close. And as it draws to a close... Naomi's concerns reemerge and it's natural to understand why for six weeks or more now she's been able to see provision through Ruth because of this opportunity to work in the field but when the harvest ends well where will the provision come from what comes next in this relationship how will these two widows get by during a long winter when there is no harvest will Boaz's kindness continue on after the harvest and in what way So not wanting to find out how that's going to play out, Naomi launches a plan of her own to help Ruth cement her relationship with Boaz and ensure that this season of provision might become a lifetime of provision. And when I was last here, we read the opening verses of chapter 3, and we covered some of this detail. For the sake of reminding you of what we've done, I'm going to reread them, but I'm not going to recover all of that material. We're going to sort of pick up with the next step of thought in this passage and then of course moving on from it into the rest of chapter three let's go to verse one again in chapter three and start there then naomi her mother-in-law said to her my daughter shall i not seek security for you that it may be well with you now is not boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were behold he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight Wash yourself and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. She said to her, all that you say I will do. So this is the thing we read last time, Naomi's plan. And it centers on Boaz's role as a kinsman to Naomi's family. Remember, we said Boaz is Elimelech's relative. Elimelech is the dead husband of Naomi. And according to the law, the Jewish law, he then is a man who might be expected to rescue Naomi's family from widowhood. But as we learned in previous teaching, Naomi is simply too old now to bear children. So it must fall to Ruth, who is still young enough to marry and have kids, to pick up in that way, to to be the one to be redeemed. There'd be no purpose in a kinsman to redeem Naomi because it wouldn't arrive at the outcome. The, The purpose of the redeeming is to arrive at a son who would carry on the family name. So a woman who can't have kids is not redeemable in that sense. But Ruth could be redeemed. So Ruth's decision to remain with Naomi instead of going home like Orpah did has become Naomi's best hope for security. If Ruth were to remarry and have a child, then Naomi knows she would be welcomed into that home and that son would continue her family line as she hopes. So it's safe to say Naomi's future is tied to Ruth's future. Naomi explains to Ruth that her relationship with Boaz is the key to their continued survival after the harvest end. She says, I'm going to seek security for you. Now, this is the chiastic turning point in the entire story of Ruth. Remember, we talked about chiasms here. In the past, chiasms are a structure of language in the the way the Bible is written that reflects the point of a story. So a series of thoughts are developed, and then a corresponding series of thoughts are developed in reverse. And where that turn happens is the point of the whole story. And as it turns out, if you did a chiastic outline of the whole book of Ruth, and the whole book is a chiasm, the point at that turn is chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1 is the chiastic turn, and not simply because it's the midpoint of the book in terms of chapter, that just happens to be the way it is, but because it's the point of the story. This is a story of seeking rest. This is a story of how you obtain rest, how these women do, but in a picture, how we all do. And Naomi says, I'm going to seek rest for you, Ruth. The Hebrew word translated security here is manak, which is literally translated a place of rest. My Bible says security, but in reality, you should say I'm going to seek rest for you. Naomi wants to find a way for them to be at rest. Now, in the Hebrew mind, the word rest is a sacred term. It's a term with a far greater weight of meaning than you and I typically apply to it. When we talk about rest, we typically think of little more than lying down on our couch for a little while. And that's not what the Hebrew thinks when he thinks that word. Theologically, when they say rest, I want you to think of what we mean when we say being saved. In the broadest sense of the term. Obtaining rest meant, for them, ceasing to worry. It meant ceasing to struggle. It meant ceasing to doubt. Ceasing to be in jeopardy by obtaining a permanent source of blessing. Obtaining something that was permanent, that has no comparison in everyday life. So when they say rest, they mean an awful lot more than we do. That's what Naomi has just said to Ruth. Finding rest has been the desire of Naomi's heart from the very beginning of this story. The whole story is set up by her lack of rest. Think about it. She followed her husband Elimelech outside the land originally because the land was experiencing a famine and they were struggling just to get by. Struggling to be able to plant and eat. But then the decision that he made to let the family leave the land, that resulted in just one more tragedy after another. First, Elimelech dies, then her sons die, and then she finds herself destitute in a foreign land in which she has no inheritance whatsoever. The family has done everything it could by its own power to obtain rest, and it's only gone from bad to worse in the process. So, if anything, she's been moving in the opposite direction of rest from the beginning of the story. So now you see Naomi and Ruth returning to the land, still in search of that rest. And again, I'm thinking of the word in the Hebrew sense, the biggest sense of all blessing without struggle and without disappointment. And then meeting Boaz. Well, now that's given them this measure of provision, this this degree of protection in the land. But it's not true. It's not true rest. Because why? Because it's temporary. You know, the harvest ends. There goes your rest. It's temporary provision at best, friends. And when your hope lies in something temporary, it is no rest at all. Even as you enjoy it, you're worrying about when it's going to end, right? I, I always find it ironic when people lose their job. And they may have this forced two, three-month vacation. But does anybody enjoy it? Make the most of it. Go fishing. Plant a garden. Just lie around and watch Oprah on TV. Just That would actually would not be a good way to spend time. But... The point I'm making is you talk to people about, oh, I'm sure you'll get your job and, you know, someday God will fix this. And Meanwhile, I want you to just enjoy this time off. You know you don't enjoy it. Why? Because it's not permanent. The whole idea of Manok is that it is permanent or it's not rest. That's what they want. I think many of us know the feeling that Naomi and Ruth are having at this point in the story. The search for rest combined with this constant disappointment and this constant insecurity in daily life, rest in the sense of manoch, the big sense, it always seems just a little out of reach, doesn't it? Even when you get some measure of it, in the back of your mind, it's not permanent, which robs it of all its real value. Every phase of your life is like this. I don't want to depress you, but let's just think about this for a minute. Every phase of our life is like this, really. It's a pursuit of some kind of satisfaction, but for many, if not all of us, it's like living in a Rolling Stone song. I can't get no satisfaction through the whole of life. You start by striving in school as a kid. What's your expectation? All that striving will arrive at the security of a good job someday down the road. Well, then you get the job. But then you find yourself having to work overtime to afford the things that you have bought because you expect those things to bring you comfort and rest. Then you finally obtain all those things, but they never bring you the joy you expected. In fact, you struggle a lifetime to be ready for retirement because obviously that's when you're going to get rest. But then you actually approach retirement and you begin to worry there won't be enough to last. Or even if you do have enough money, maybe not enough health, maybe not enough friends, maybe not enough purpose. And what are you supposed to do in retirement anyway? You're supposed to enjoy rest. I have family who are retired, and it's driving them nuts because they don't know what to do with their time. And even then, it just leads to death. It's just leading you to something you don't want to have anyway. In other words, if we're not careful, we'll fill our life with striving and regrets so that as the end approaches, we're left with worry that we didn't use our life well. That's the ultimate irony in all this. At the end of it all, even if we attained something we were seeking, we'll wonder if that was the best use of our life. We worked our whole life for some kind of rest, which was always out of reach, which gave us no satisfaction. We never found security. We rarely find any freedom from want or worry. We were always thinking about the next problem. And as a Christian, these same things happen. It's not as though our Christianity becomes some insurance against this kind of mistaken focus in life. We all fall into the trap of trying to work the plan the world told us that we're all supposed to work. Right? I don't want you to think that it's just certain people. To think this way. I think we all do this to some extent. I've done this. And for the Christian who leads this kind of life, the problem isn't that rest can be found in this life. The problem is we were always looking for rest in the wrong place. That's ultimately the problem. As the saying goes, we all want to go to heaven, just not today. We know, like Naomi's family, that we're working to secure a rest that cannot be found outside the land. And for us, the land, of course, is a picture of the kingdom. The rest was found in a redeemer in the face of Boaz, who they never saw coming. And now, as they have him, they're anxious to move to the next step of the plan in their situation, which would be marriage, obviously. Just as we've come to know our redeemer, our protector, our provider, but at a distance at this stage of our life, He's made promises to us, just like he made to Ruth. He's directing us to work in his field, just like he told Ruth. But we're eager for him to bring us to the manoch, to the rest, that we really long for, the one that has no tears, no death, no misery. All the work of our hands prospers. We don't build and someone else lives in our homes or gathers our harvest. Everything we do has a great payoff without the frustration that we know so much today in our current life. Friends, that is the true rest of the eternal kingdom. It's planned. It's coming. While you wait for it, though, don't make the mistake of thinking. You can accelerate that plan in the sense of trying to obtain that kind of rest on your own terms in this life. Again, I'm not trying to depress you because that doesn't mean you can't have joy, but your joy will come from seeking what is to be sought now rather than trying to replace it with some earthly version of what's only found in the kingdom. True rest is not going to come while you're working in the field, so to speak. Ruth got up every day. She went to work. She wasn't lying around. But the work was joyful because it was for the right person in the right field. Our true rest, the one in which we will cease having any of the struggles or trials of life, where we don't have sin and disappointment and conflict, well, only that rest comes in the kingdom. And that kingdom is not going to come a day sooner than God presents it to us. If you think you can find rest while you're working in Boaz's field, so to speak, well, then you're likely to get distracted from the work of serving him and start wandering off into someone else's field, so to speak, some other part of the world, working on someone else's problem. Like your boss's problem at your corporate position, or like your friend's problem, or your family member's problem. We all have a life. None of us are going to sit at home and do nothing. We're not talking about idleness. As Paul says, one who won't work is not going to eat. We're talking about serving Christ as he appoints, wherever that is, and not trying to find peace in a world that does not possess it. To put a a positive end to this before you, you all go off and get counseling as a result of this, we know that there is a measure of rest now, but you have to know what to look for. You aren't going to escape working, of course, but if you make your work building the kingdom, then that work will be joyful and as easy as it was for Ruth and Boaz's field. Uh, I worked in corporate America for 15 years, as you all know, and I spent a good deal of that time wandering the halls counseling and praying and and teaching people whenever God made a moment available in my day. It just made my reason to go to work different than showing up to push pencils and, and fill in spreadsheets. I had a purpose, and those other things were simply a means to that. And we may not obtain earthly riches, not all of us, but we can learn to be content with less if that means redirecting our efforts to riches in the kingdom. And you won't escape trials, but you can endure them gladly, knowing Christ is testing us to know if we're worthy of greater things in the kingdom. In other words, you can withstand a lifetime of striving with Christ in order to obtain an eternity of rest with Christ. That's the trade-off. A minimal lifetime of struggle to obtain an eternity of rest. And by obtain, I don't mean to obtain salvation. I mean in the rewards that will come for the sacrifices made now. So that's the picture you're seeing here. Two women seeking for the rest that they need, working until a moment comes when the Redeemer is willing to advance the plan to the next step. And that's where we're going now in chapter 3. The Redeemer is going to advance the plan a step for these women. So at the start of chapter 3, they're seeking true rest, and Naomi sees an opportunity to secure it. What I want to talk about in this passage that we've already read that I didn't cover earlier is what the plan involves. Naomi's been waiting the entire harvest season for Boaz to fulfill that liberate marriage requirement that we've talked about in, in times past. That's the one that says that the closest relative to a widow without a son is to marry that widow to produce a son to carry on the family name of the dead husband. Now, a husband and a son, husband for Ruth, a son ultimately for the family of Naomi, that would mean true rest in earthly terms for these women. Because in a patriarchal culture... A husband and a son would bring both protection and provision for the entire life of that family. That's what these women are desperately seeking. So if only Boaz would step up and meet the terms of the law on behalf of these women. That's what's at stake. One of these widows needs to pursue that relationship. Although in a very diplomatic way, of course. Which of the widows is going to seek the proposal? Well, as we said earlier, only one of them. It makes sense to do that because only one of them can have children. And that, of course, in this case, is going to be Ruth. So Naomi instructs Ruth. Here's what you're going to do, Ruth. I want you to take this bold step. I want you to prompt Boaz into assuming the liberate marriage responsibilities that could be his. And so she tells Ruth in verse 2, Right now, Boaz is sleeping on the threshing floor during the harvest. And here's why he's there. At the end of the harvest, remember, this is a process of taking... Uh, grain out of the field bringing it in and preparing it for use as food so at the end of a harvest you have the threshing followed by the winnowing and the threshing is you take a stalk of grain a a whole bunch of them and you lay them out on a hard surface on a rock usually something that's a naturally hard surface and then they would either use uh, uh, animals cattle of one kind or another or maybe they would use implements by hand and they would beat this grain just mercilessly because they have to get the hard grains, uh, the fruit, to separate from all the chaff and all the wrappings of the, of the rest of the stalk. So they're going to beat this stuff for a while. After a while, what you get is a whole mess on the ground. Now you've got to get the little seeds out of it. And you're not going to pick them out by hand, that would take forever. So they gather it all up in baskets. And then they would take them and they would throw the material up into the air. And then the wind would blow the lighter material away the chaff the stuff that's not seed but the heavier seeds fall right back down into the basket and if you're skillful in this you can just keep doing it almost like looking for gold it's a process and before you're done you got a basket full of seed and nothing else and then they would just continue to do that repetitively they would thrash the grain the threshing floor and then they'd winnow it And they'd move on, end up with baskets of grain. And those baskets get reused. So they take the grain and they pour it out at some point nearby. And over time, a pile of grain emerges out of this process. It's usually done at night because in the Middle East, in late summer, the hot, dry climate produces very little breeze during the daytime. But at night, right about sundown, the breeze will kick up and it'll blow quite strong all the way until just after midnight. So the first half of each night then is the threshing and winnowing process for the harvest followed by a feast usually for all the workers late into the night like midnight and of course you're already there with your pile of grain it's the middle of the night you're half drunk usually and you've had a lot to eat so what are you going to do you sleep right there on the threshing floor next to your grain partly to guard it and partly because you're going to be there again in the morning anyway and you really don't feel like taking a long walk after a big meal Workers would sleep by these grain piles. And in fact, whole families who were involved in the work would be out there. So it almost has this festival kind of feel to it, like a camp out. All the people are there. Everybody's celebrating. I mean, they're happy to get their harvest. They're enjoying the meal. So it's a very celebratory period of time in, in Israel's year. Naomi knew it was harvest time. So she knew this was the pattern of work. So she knew where to find Boaz. So she tells Ruth, I know where to send you. Go to the threshing floor. And then she tells her how to encourage a proposal. For marriage. First, Ruth is to wash herself, she says, anoint herself, put on her best clothes, which, given their social status, I doubt these clothes were all that special, but they represented the best she could find. And in all three of these steps washing, anointing, and best clothes what you see are the steps that are normally taken by a bride right before her wedding a woman who is betrothed would live in this state of cleanliness and dress perpetually every day between the moment that she is betrothed and the next later moment when she actually has the wedding ceremony. And those moments can be separated by months in the year. So she hasn't received a formal marriage proposal, but she's going to approach Boaz in the form of a woman who is betrothed. And so as she comes to him that night in these clothes and having been anointed and so on, Then she's going to, as she reaches the threshing floor, she's going to find Boaz laying down in a happy, busy place in the evening when everyone is enjoying their work. But she's not to approach him until after the eating and drinking completed. This is a very strategic move. There's nothing in the law here. This is not something that's required. It's just good strategy. Because she knows it's a joyous affair. There's a big feasting time. He's going to be distracted in the work and in the eating. And even in the drinking and if you've ever had to ask something important of someone who's in the middle of a moment like that especially if they've had a couple of drinks of wine you may find that either helping your cause or hurting your cause and in this case Naomi's making the strategic decision that it won't help our cause for you to lay this on his lap in the middle of that moment let's make sure he's ready to hear it but let's make sure he's in a good mood so in verse four Naomi tells Ruth lie down discreetly next to Boaz and uncover his feet now, men in this day wore robes that were as long as the ground. They covered their feet. So when a man lay down like this at night, he didn't have to go get a blanket. He was wearing one. So he just had to kind of curl up inside his, his cloak and he was totally covered inside his garment, his outer garment. And men typically wore an inner garment than an outer heavier garment. And the outer heavier one would have covered him and kept him warm. So what Naomi told Ruth to do is lay down next to him and then very discreetly just pull up the outer robe, enough to reveal his feet, to expose his feet to the cool night desert air. Now, at first, this may seem like a strange plan. In fact, I'm sure it seems like a strange plan. But Naomi knows exactly what she's doing. She's drawing on a Jewish custom, one that Naomi expects Boaz to also recognize. And you see this because in verse 4, Naomi actually tells Ruth, Boaz will tell you what to do. That's her way of saying, he'll know what we're saying. He'll know what you're trying to get across. Well, what is she up to here? What is it she expects Boaz to understand? Well, by taking these actions, Ruth would be letting Boaz know that she is willing to be his wife if he should desire to marry her. In Israel, uncovering someone in this manner was an allusion to marriage. And you can see this in scripture in various places. Uh, in Ezekiel, for example, the Lord, when he describes himself as a husband and he describes Israel as his wife. So here again, we have a husband wife picture in that relationship, in that covenant. The Lord speaks to Israel this way in Ezekiel 16:7, He says, I made you numerous like plants of the field. Then you grew up, became tall and reached the age for fine ornaments your breasts were formed, your hair had grown, you were naked and bare. And he's speaking here about the, the maturation of the people of Israel into a nation. A beautiful woman ready for a husband, in other words. In verse 8 he says, Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love, so I spread my skirt over you. The skirt here would be like his robe. I put my robe over you and covered your nakedness, and I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. All right. Notice that the Lord spread his skirt, or as I said, like a cloak, over Israel to cover her nakedness. That is symbolic language to represent a spiritual covering, the marriage of the Old Covenant. And the same is seen in the way men marry women. Uh, you see this similarly in Deuteronomy, uh, in the way the law spoke about how the people of Israel were to live. In Deuteronomy 22.30 it says, A man shall not take his father's wife so that he will not uncover his father's skirt. Again, euphemistically saying that I cannot have marriage relations, basically, with my father's wife. And then it describes that as uncovering my father's skirt. So if my father has put his skirt over his wife and I come and I have relations with that woman, it's as if I've uncovered his covering and taken that woman illegitimately. But again, I'm showing you that the language here is commonly used to represent marriage one way or the other. Lastly, Deuteronomy 27.20 says, Cursed is he who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's skirt. So, when Naomi asks Ruth, Lift up Boaz's cloak to expose his feet, she's sending a real clear message to him. By uncovering the feet, she's inviting him to cover them back. And he would want to do that. It's uncomfortable. It's cold. As he does that, she's implying he could also cover her at the same time. So it's a way of inviting him to take that step in her life. Now, some have looked at this passage. and I'm just acknowledging this because you may find it if you run across in your own studies. Some have chosen to take these, this innocent moment in Scripture and pervert it by suggesting that Ruth uncovered more than just Boaz's feet in this moment. They're, they draw on the fact that in some places you can see the man's feet used in Scripture as a euphemism for his privates. Now, that is true, that that can happen, but that's not implied by the text here. If anything, it's the other way around. She's doing everything she can to be discreet, to be polite, to do this in a diplomatic way. Hardly to be that kind of a woman, to be perverse and to be suggestive in that way. So that's just an overreach in interpretation. Others have suggested that Naomi was encouraging Ruth here in a brash way, as if Ruth was making the proposal to Boaz, as if it was Ruth saying, I'll marry you. Here again, the scriptures are very clear about the euphemism. The euphemism is that the man covering a woman is the picture of a man making a proposal. Ruth did not cover Boaz with her skirt. Ruth uncovered Boaz so as to Boaz to have to make a decision. Do I cover only my own feet, or do I cover both of us? So it's very elegantly an invitation for a proposal. It is not a proposal itself, because that would have been inappropriate. These speculations and others like them are just not dealing with the text honestly. I think they're coming from people who have ulterior motives. In reality, Naomi has asked Ruth to do something very discreet, very polite and very appropriate to offer an invitation for a proposal. And Boaz has already indicated in the way he has established a covenant relationship with Ruth that he has an interest in her, that he's willing to protect her. So it's not a big leap here. Boaz just hasn't moved the relationship ahead. And so it leaves them wondering, why hasn't he gone to the next step? Therefore, Ruth's actions are a way to politely indicate her willingness to consider marriage. And I love the way Naomi set this up in a discreet fashion. She set it up so that it happens in the dark. Probably everyone else was sleeping. And under those circumstances, therefore, Ruth's appearance at the foot of Boaz would not have attracted a lot of attention because there's a lot of people sleeping all over the place. It's not as though she comes up to him in the moment when no one would have expected a woman to be nearby. And then thirdly, she uncovers his feet quietly and lays there in a way that simply offers him an opportunity to make the decision either way, and no one's going to be wiser either way. He's not embarrassed for having said no. He's not forced or pressured to say yes. It shows respect for him in the way that they've approached this moment. We find out in the text next that there are two reasons why Boaz, two good reasons actually, why Boaz has not taken this step on his own up until this point. Let's go to chapter 3, verse 6. So we went down to the threshing floor. She went down to the threshing floor. And did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain and she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid for you are a close relative. Then he said, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Now it is true, I am a close relative, however, there is a relative closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you, as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So, The plan goes exactly as Naomi expected. As you see, Boaz awakes here. It looks as though they were laying there for a little while with his feet uncovered, which makes perfect sense. You're asleep. Someone uncovers your feet. You don't just wake up. Usually it takes a while. Why are my feet so cold? And he sits up. And that's when he notices her. And he says, who are you? Now, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because it wasn't that long ago, a few weeks, that he met the lady and he was so enamored with her that he put her in this covenant. Remember all of that? How can he not recognize her? Well, it shows you just how dark it was. Probably a very moonless night, maybe a cloudy night. Everyone's in the shadows. He's sleepy. He's, I can't tell who this is. Right? It just shows the discreetness of it. And then she responds saying, spread your covering over your maid. She says, I'm Ruth and I want you to do the right thing by me. The Hebrew word for close relative here is the same word that we translate kinsman redeemer. So she just said kinsman redeemer to her. She's using legal language out of the law. So she's politely saying, I'm willing to have you as my redeemer if you would be willing to fulfill that law on my behalf. Naomi's plan has expected this moment and she's expected this conversation and now she expects a certain response because she knows the character of the man that they're dealing with here, Boaz. And it happens. In in response to Ruth's overture, Boaz responds first in joy. And he says, he declares her first kindness to him has now been exceeded by this last kindness. Now that may seem like a strange thing for him to say when you think about it. Because after all, isn't Boaz the one whose kindness is the one that you know has gone to Ruth? I mean, in and, and what way can we say Ruth has shown kindness to Boaz? It's sort of an odd statement, isn't it? Well... Ruth has showed respect and kindness to Boaz as well, which is the thing he's referring to. And the first act of kindness and respect that he received from her was the way she has served him well as a maid. Remember, she's been made a maid servant in the house and she's gone into the field every day just as he expected. Ruth showed Boaz kindness in the sense of devoted service in the harvest, working every day. Rewarding his trust, in other words, with conscientious, diligent service in the field. I've got to tell you, friends, every servant in Boaz's household would have been blessed to be a part of this kind of man's house. We know that. But not every servant, I'm assuming, responded to that favor by blessing him with the kind of obedience Ruth gave. Can you all attest to that? Not every servant, not every employee, not everyone does the right thing that they're supposed to at the same level that they should. But there are some who do. That's what he's talking about here. Boaz is saying, your first kindness to me was when I asked you to work my field and do what I asked you. You were there early. You were there to the late part of the day. Remember, he found her late in the day in his house. That's faithful, obedient service to a master, and it's a blessing to him. And now, he says, your last kindness exceeds even that. And of course, he means here that she's willing to forego younger men in order to become his wife, which is an act of kindness to him because he's evidently unmarried. That's clear. And as an older man, unmarried... At some point, your prospects start to diminish, certainly. And the opportunity for an older man to have a young wife, I mean, we have stereotypes, we make fun of it, but in reality, it's a wonderful thing for a man to attain the love, support, and kindness of a younger woman for all the reasons that we can understand. The vitality of the woman, the service abilities of a woman like that, and in a cultural sense, the way it reflects well on the man, from the best sense of it. So Boaz is saying, you have not gone after younger men, whether they were rich or poor, he says. And from that perspective, Boaz is greatly blessed by her interest. So in response to Ruth's kindness... Boaz pledges, I'm going to do whatever I can to make this right for you, to pursue the wedding plan that you're asking me to pursue. But, he says, I can't do that freely at this point. There's an obstacle. And here's the second reason we mentioned. The first reason was, he must have felt some inhibition to go after her because he was so old, and it would have been an imposition on a young woman to have an older husband. He didn't want to put that on her. He wanted to leave her free to find a younger husband. But now she's taken that objection off the table. And so the last objection is, there's another guy in the picture. He says that there is a closer living relative to you than I am. And another man, therefore, has the right of first refusal. He has the right to redeem over Boaz. And so I'm prevented from acting because of that. Now, remember, you and I may think of the levirate marriage rule as some kind of obligation or burden. That's not how it was perceived in the language of the law. It's certainly not how it should have been perceived in the culture. The idea was, it was a privilege to have someone put a wife in your lap. I mean, as hard as it could be, perhaps, to find a wife for the law, to mandate your marriage to a woman, a woman who who has, has this opportunity to receive a son and then continue on inheritance. This is a great thing. It's a great thing. Remember, most marriages were arranged anyway. So it's not as though you were losing some choice in the matter. You were simply gaining a guaranteed wife. That's a good thing. right. So in this case, Boaz could not take Ruth knowing he was second in line because it would have been an affront to the man who had the first chance. He should want the wife if he has the opportunity. And we know, friends, Boaz is a man who keeps the law. He is a man who observes the law. He does not violate law. And he says he can't do it. But he says, I'll address this in the morning. And his plan, of course, is to put the first relative on the spot and to say, you've got this obligation. Do you want it or not? If the man will do it, fine. If he will not do it, he says, then I will do it. So one way or the other, Ruth and Naomi are finally going to get the rest that they've been seeking. I want to turn just briefly to finish on our second story because, you, as you know, we remember Ruth pictures the Gentile church. And as such, she's betrothed. We're betrothed, as the church is, to our groom, to Christ. And just like Ruth, we've said we feel as though we're the ones blessed by our relationship to this groom we haven't even met yet that we know one day will Take us and, and make us his wife, and we'll see him face to face. And, and obviously we are blessed by that. It goes without saying that we're blessed by that. In fact, I think it's safe to say we truly don't even have a clue how blessed we are by that relationship from this side of heaven, right? How could we know? We can't possibly appreciate all the glory and all, that our relationship with Christ will eventually give us in time. Because Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians two nine, he says, "...just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man..." All that God has prepared for those who love him. So as simply put, you couldn't, if you tried, imagine all the glory that's prepared for us. It's beyond our ability to understand this side of heaven. It's that great. And I think also like Ruth, despite the fact that we've received so much from Christ, nevertheless we can also be a blessing to Him. That's the the side of our relationship with Christ that can be overlooked. We acknowledge that we needed Him, and we certainly acknowledge the blessings that come from that relationship, but we may overlook the reality that we have an opportunity to bless Him in response, just as Ruth, we were told, blessed Boaz. And we do it in exactly the same way. By working diligently in the field that he asked us to work in. And, of course, we said already that the field that Boaz had was a specific plot of land. The field Christ has is the world that he's left us in. You can bless the Lord who extended grace to you by serving him faithfully in the field of the world. And it's a really small thing when you think about it. I mean, if you want to put these things on on comparison, it's a tiny thing. I mean, where would Ruth have been? Without Boaz's kindness, how would she have found anything of any value if she'd been working outside his field? And likewise, where would you and I be apart from the grace God has extended to us and in the process change the eternal course of our lives? Where would we really be? How lonely, how frustrated, how desperate, how hopeless in the face of death would any of us be without him? So when you put all of that on one side of the scale... How hard really is it to say we spend our life serving him? The little bit of time he's left us on this earth. It's really not a, a close comparison. It just feels that way when we have the blinders on of looking at our everyday life. right? To give that up for Christ, well, you're asking a lot. But it's only because our perspective is too narrow. If you wish that you could find a way. Have you ever had that feeling someday where you say, I wish I could just pay Christ back for all that he's done for me. I wish there was some way, I mean, I say thanks, I tell him I love him for it, but I wish there was a way I could just do something for him. Well, friends, there is. Paul actually gives us the recipe in Romans chapter 12. Verse 1. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So here's the recipe. It's really simple. And we'll end on this. If you want to bless the Lord in the way Ruth was able to return a favor to Boaz, then you serve him sacrificially. Bless him by forsaking other, more attractive suitors, younger, richer, more powerful suitors than him. Set aside your desires for earthly riches and fame and power and accomplishment and pleasures and the like, at least to the extent that those things get in the way of serving Christ. Don't waste time striving for rest that only comes in the kingdom. Serve in the field, that is, in the work he's given you to do every day, with an eye toward building the kingdom within that world. If you want to know how better to do that, come to our conference. That's what we're going to talk about. And when the harvest comes, friends, when that grain is harvested, and you may already know scripture uses the term harvest as a picture of the end of this age. When the age comes to an end, when our world comes to an end, when our time comes to an end, we will obtain the rest, just as these women are now about to obtain theirs. And with it, we'll receive the reward of our service. That's our goal. That's what we're here to do. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Father, that you brought me back well and and strong enough to preach. I pray, Father, that the, the words I've spoken today have pleased you because they reflect your heart, that they deal honestly with your word, that they convey truthfully the priorities that you have for us as a church. But, Father, as a man, I know I'm incapable of equaling you in any of those things, except as you choose to speak through me. So I pray, Father, that whatever may not be according to you and your will and your your desires, well then, Father, let those pass through and, and not be remembered. And all these things, Father, make sure that it is your truth and your word that retains in the hearts of those who heard. And I pray, Father, that as it does its work there, that as we all consider our lives as we've gone through the text of Scripture day to day and continue to do, that in us would not just build a conviction of things, but also, Father, the courage to act on that conviction. You don't ask us to tear our lives upside down in a day, but you do ask us, Father, to, to take up our cross daily. And I know, Father, if we're following you daily, then we're going to get somewhere in the end. The place you want us. The place in which we serve you. And the place in which we do the most to please you. But if we ever set our cross down, Father, and sort of stare at it as we walk by to do our own things, well, then I know, Father, that you are not pleased and that we have have traded eternal things for things that are temporal. None of us are immune to doing that, Father, but we all have the potential to do better. So I pray, Father, for that as well. Thank you for continuing this work in Southwest Austin. Grow it, Father. Reach others. And Father, I pray that you would uh, use each of us in that work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.